Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the latest from JM in the AM. Allison Josephs is with us recently to discuss the portrayal of Orthodox Jews in the media. Jew in the city, Allison Josephs. Here's my conversation with her on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Um, Allison Josephs, Jew in the city, is with us live via telephone. Uh, she's, of course, uh, a member of the Nahum Siegel Network with amazing interviews every single Thursday at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern time for us on the network for many, many years, and we thank her for that. Uh, but she has had uh, incredible influence in the area of um, presenting Orthodox Judaism in a proper and sensible fashion. She's done a million other things as well. We'll talk about some of the organizations and branches that she has started and continues to operate. Uh, but the reason I start with this whole topic on the representing um, uh, reality when it comes to Orthodox Judaism is because since the um, series came out, My Unorthodox Life, a Netflix series, which it seems in the Jewish community either people were like me and they completely ignored it, or they were like some of my family members and they watched the entire thing three times the night it came out. <laughs> it seems like nobody was in between. They were either addicted to it or had no interest in it. Uh, and I, I spoke on the air about you know not, not spending any time on it, which I'm not a criticism of those who did, frankly. Um, it just didn't strike my fancy, the whole concept. Uh, but since it came out, I don't know how many hundreds of, of contacts I have had with people through email, WhatsApp, in person, etc., who have asked me to get Jew in the City, Allison Josephs, on the air to discuss the series and this very topic. And now we finally have that opportunity. Allison Josephs, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Glad that the fans want me here because I also <laughs> want to come on. So it's a good shit up. I appreciate that. Yeah, they want to hear, hear me ask the questions. They certainly want to hear your answers. I can tell you that much. Um, uh, by the way, this whole this whole uh, category uh, is only going to get bigger and bigger. It seems every time I turn around, there's another trailer for yet another series or show or short film or documentary about the Orthodox community or a story involving the Orthodox community. So whatever experience you've just had in the aftermath of my unorthodox life, it looks like it's just going to be, you know, an even greater and greater experience coming up. So first of all, this is actually the third time we've had such an experience because after one of us came out, um, I wrote about that. Uh, that was a reality show or like a documentary on Netflix following three ex-Hasidic people. Right. Um, our sign-ups went through the roof. I wrote an article um, that had a ton of views. When the pandemic started, working on nonprofit, I thought, well, probably my organization is going to end out because we'll put all efforts toward not dying from coronavirus. And then two weeks into the pandemic, my unorthodox life, sorry, unorthodox, the original, because right. there's so many now, unorthodox, right. the original, came out, um, and we got more traffic in the two months that that came out than we got in all of 2019. Also, we got double the signups after that for the entire year. So the truth is that because of those two previous experiences, we knew my unorthodox life was actually going to be a big deal, and we, I prepared by writing an op-ed and, you know, getting different material ready. I got... Um, a, a, a media copy of the show to, to watch before it dropped. So we knew that it was the Olympics and the rest of the world. Um, a couple of weeks ago was the Olympics of Jew in the city. Right. What was, was this very different than the other two you mentioned? And I don't just mean in terms of content and in terms of storyline, but in terms of reaction and people's 
uh, uh, displeasure with it? Was it was it very similar to the other two, or this was way different? Well, I think number one, um, there was a big issue that people took with this woman, Julia Hart, presenting her life um, as reality because she really co-opted a much more insular and right-wing life that she never actually had lived and called it her own. So I think just sort of the outrage about, um, you know, sort of telling a story that wasn't even true got a lot of people riled up. And all the people that know her in real life, um, you know, were very upset about that. Also, she made these blanket statements that the yeshivish, Haimish community are fundamentalists. And this is very dangerous to talk in such sort of inciting and general terms. Are there fundamentalists within those communities? Of course there are. There's fundamentalists probably within any right-wing community. Um, but to lump the entire community and sort of uh, lump them and, and stamp them in such a negative light um, is really so dangerous in yeah. the face of rising anti-Semitism. Yeah. I would say with unorthodox, that wasn't claiming to be someone's exact life. It was sort of based on a true story. Right. And so they took license for that. For, um, you know, the... the um, My unorthodox life? Series, yeah. No, no, for, for the one before that, ah, um, right. for one of us, I will have to say one of us and not this is us, because I would right. get that confused. For one of us, <laughs> um, it, <laughs> that one also, um, I know, I think that they did try to present a little bit more of a, a broader story, and there was also just so much sadness in, in the stories of uh, these three individuals they followed. Um, I think for this, because the nature of reality TV is meant to kind of like rile people up and they kind of made, um, you know, the Orthodox Jewish community as the enemy. Right. Um, it just felt, it really felt like backstabbing. Did the series, and, and again, I didn't see it, and I'm not apologizing for that because, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, I these things are introduced and I start getting obsessed with it. And I, and I, I too, is somebody, you know, who'll, who'll finish the whole series in a night and sometimes it just, you know, passes me by. But in this series, is there any portrayal of the beauty of Orthodox life? Is there any positive takeaway that any observer would have about our community? So here's the thing. Her ex-husband, who she you know describes as part of this crazy and extreme and anti-women community, comes off as such a mensch, um, and from what I've heard, he is a mensch. Um, her youngest son, who stays religious, um, First of all, she paints him also as some guy from Maya Sharim. He goes to a modern Orthodox high school. Um, he also comes off as compassionate and loving to his mother and also just sort of coolly confident about who he is as a Jew. So those are some nice moments um, kind of within the show. Despite that, we've been tracking online comments because that's the kind of thing that we do. Right. And the feedback that you'll see from viewers are things like, She's crying to him that he shouldn't stop talking to girls. I think he picked this up at a modern Orthodox sleepaway. Again, he did not go to uh, a camp uh, in, uh, you know, a Hasidic camp. Right. I think he picked this up at a modern Orthodox camp and not talk to girls. And she's crying these big tears that he shouldn't become an extremist. And he's kind of sitting there on camera, very uncomfortable because there's a camera in his face. His mother's being very emotional. And you see online commenters saying things like, look at that creepy smile. He's been raised in his community to hate women and see them as second-class citizens, like kind of what a misogynist he is. So the thing is that although he comes off, uh, you know, sort of having conviction and being kind to his mother, because you hear so much of uh, Julia and one of her daughters especially talking about how the community was so awful to women and did such horrible things to them, 
Um, and she said, well, the younger daughter, Miriam, said she'd never played sports before. Meanwhile, I saw that she was, um, you know, a, a Jewish link hero of the week, a sports hero of the week. So, I mean, just the, the, the lies that they told and the, the tales that they spun, it just takes away the credibility. Mm-hmm. But what I will tell you is that I believe there is a kernel of truth to this story in that she was a woman that struggled. She did not feel like she had a voice. She did not feel like she had a choice. She did not feel like she was unconditionally loved. We see all of those patterns at Makom, at our branch that right. deals with the ex, you know, Hasidic and ex Haredi population. Um, but it's not Judaism that does it. It's, it's interpersonal relationships. It even can come from loving and hardworking parents, but there are subtle ways that a message may not be given over. And so I believe that there is that kernel of human struggle, but she blames it on Judaism and the Orthodox community, and it's really outrageous. Allison Josephs is with us. By the way, uh, we should mention that in addition to um, your own site, obviously, and uh, uh, being outspoken um, regarding the comments, etc., uh, TMZ has interviewed you about this, and that that, that has, gets a lot of traction, obviously, in this country and the world. Um, you represented us really well there, and you've written op-eds, as you mentioned on this topic as well. So we are we are glad and we are lucky that we have you out there and others, but you uh, primarily who are uh, really tackling this issue in a respectful manner. Uh, and we appreciate that very, very much. Uh, Allison Josephs, Jew in the City, is with us. Um, so do you sometimes try to, do you even spend any time, because I do spend time on this, you may not have the time to spend on this because you're busy deflecting comments online all day. Do, do you sometimes wonder about the philosophy or the psychology behind all this? Do you, do you think that some people are simply you know, happy people and others are very sad and hateful people, and no matter what the situation they'd be in, even if they were a part of a different religion than ours, they would simply resent the existence or the authority that's in in whatever other religion or system they're in? So um, I actually do have to spend a lot of time thinking about this because, (laughs) um, you know, (laughs) here's the thing. We've recently reorganized the organization, so I just want to give a quick overview so my language makes sense. Um, the part of our organization that's the media arm that's essentially dealing with the reputational damage of these continuously bad stories and just sort of all the ideas that permeate society like I grew up with as a secular but proud Jew, we've named that branch Keter to symbolize that we're restoring the Keter Shem Tov of the firm community and Orthodox Judaism, and that includes our original content, our pushback in media, media consulting, our all-star awards, our Meet a Jew in the City Make a Friend pop-up, all that falls under Keter. Our second branch, Makom, and we've dropped the project of that now, we're just calling it Makom, that is the space that we're dealing with the Julia Hart. So it's not just the media blowback, it's also the people themselves. And what does that look like to rehabilitate people? So I very much have to uh, understand what the psychology is. And this is what we've discovered over the last five years working with this population. And we have 250 members of Makom now. At first, it was pretty clear that we had nearly all um, trauma survivors within Makom. Um, that was sort of something that we saw pretty early on, a high number of child sex abuse victims and, of course, other t- forms of trauma. What I've gotten into in the last several months that I think is really the unifying theory, again, from everything that we've seen and people that are not in Makom will tell me their story is different. And I, of course, have to say I've never heard every story or met every person, so everybody gets to tell their own story. What we've seen as a big trend amongst hundreds of members is that there's this idea of something called childhood emotional neglect, 
which ends up causing lack of secure attachment. Now, I consider myself to be a pretty knowledgeable person and, you know, understanding um, pretty well-known psychology terms, and I was really not familiar with this. When I thought of neglect, I would think of the child that wasn't fed, that wasn't clothed, that, you know, uh, wasn't taken care of. Childhood emotional neglect um, is a lack of things that are said or a lack of feelings that are given over, and it's very subtle. And again, it can come from loving parents and can come from parents that are hardworking and trying their best. It often comes from parents who have these holes in their own upbringing and didn't realize they had the holes and then end up doing it to their children. Um, it affects, according to a psychologist of a book that I wrote, The Emotionally Absent Mother um, by Jasmine Lee Corey, and this has sort of like become our second Bible at Macomb. Um, <laughs> she talks about the fact that this study was done and childhood emotional neglect or lack of secure attachment affects 38% of the U.S. population. So this is a large percentage of people that have this. And what she essentially explained is that when you don't feel securely attached somewhere, um, you never exactly feel a part of things, and you spend your life being adrift. So if there hasn't been any major trauma, you may just kind of walk around feeling a little bit empty inside or never quite like feeling like you belong to your own family. You never can quite like exhale in your own space. And, and, that, has, and, that, has, like, and that has nothing to do with, with the Hasidic community, with the Hasidic community or, or Judaism, right? Correct. These are these are human interactions, and so what? So the opposite. So what does it what does it mean to not feel comfortable in your own space? To be able to exhale, to be able to be yourself, to be able to feel like you can be unconditionally loved without expectations of having to have a certain career if you're secular, or having to do a certain mitzvah if you're religious. So um, these things can come around when a child tries to express a certain idea and they get shot down either with a negative comment or uncomfortable laughter. Um, if the parents are especially sort of guarded about themselves and who they are as people, the child may learn to mirror that and do that back. Um, the way that this is dealt with, essentially, is inner child work, which we've been talking about a lot at MACO. We're not a mental health organization, but we do have an ongoing class to sort of familiarize our members with this concept. Essentially, what is missing from people um, when they lack these uh, good mother messages from their mother or their caretaker, because there could be another caretaker, they're not hearing things in their head like, I see you. I hear right. you, I love being with you, right. you can rest in me, I delight in you. So if, if, so there's a list within this book of Jasmine Lee Corey um, where you can read through this list and see if any of these good mother messages make you feel um, emotional. It's probably because you didn't get them, and you're probably not giving them to your children. And I actually want to do a lot of work um, educating our community about this. I mean, really so educating one, the world about this, because so it's really I, important. i got to slow you down yeah. for a second, because yeah. Macomb is, again, something that, that is now very familiar to me in this audience. Ket there is quite yeah. evident, because it fits right in as you describe it, but but you didn't give us exactly what Tikkun then is. Tikkun. So then the third branch, Tikkun came out of Macomb. And we tried to make the, the name pretty like self-evident, but essentially hearing the Macomb members talk about the issues that they had faced well, first of all, ah, we so it's fixing issues up. in our community. That's what it is. Fixing yeah, issues in our exactly. community. Yeah, exactly. Basically, a new sign-up would come in every couple of days, and when Netflix puts out a new film, right. we sometimes get several in a day. Right. Reading these heartbreaking narratives of what was lacking, what happened in the school, what happened, you know, in the home. Um, first of all, to not go crazy, I felt like I had to just like start writing things down to at least be able to keep a list of like what are we facing, what problems are coming to us. And as more and more cases came in, I saw that there are patterns here. And I think um, 
Well, there's two things. Number one, either saying a few bad apples may be understating it and not fair to their pain, or a different way of stating it may be to say there are a few bad apples, but some of those apples have leadership positions between schools and rabbinics, and even though it's just a few bad apples, um, with powers of position, they could end up hurting people. But one second. But with with the – what do we we call the people you deal with? Clients? I mean, how do we – how do we, we call them Mako members? Yeah, okay. Mako members. So your members would agree with that or not? In other words, would members generally, yeah. and I know that, that you know there are exceptions to everything, but generally speaking, would the majority of them say to you that, that if not for this one or two, one person or two people, you know, my life would have been very different? It would not have been yeah. as, you know, I, I wouldn't be where I am right now if not for these bad apples? So, yeah, so what I'll tell you is that... Um, Number one, people don't always recognize the trauma that they went through. Number two, people are not always willing to admit it. So I, um, I generally trust people, like, when they tell me at face value what they experience. And what I've learned over time is that people either aren't aware of themselves or um, what they went through is so painful, they have to uh, sort of take pains to kind of protect it and not let it be known. But as we started talking about these good mother messages and childhood emotional neglect, we have a chat that probably has a WhatsApp group over 150 people. The members that have come forward, first of all, a whole bunch of them have, um, you know, parents with narcissistic personality disorder um, and, you know, um, what, what's the other one, borderline personality disorder. So when I started seeing members talk about the number of parents that have personality disorders, that actually kind of like shocked me. That wasn't even molestation or, you know, uh, physical or abuse or that sort of thing. That was just the number of parents that have, um, the number of members of the parents with personality disorders is a really high number. Again, it's not because this is the Hasidic community, it's because this is the type of people that are being pushed out. But when this topic of childhood emotional neglect and good mother messages came out to the group, the number of people that started to say it resonated with them, the number of people started to get this book and say, like, it was so painful they had to throw it against the but, wall because but, they told their story but, but in they, the book. But they have... Um, but, I, I, yeah. No, I, I apologize for interrupting. But they. No this is why our conversations in person are a million times better, although this one, frankly, is great. Uh, yeah. But, but if, if that's the case, I, I'd have to assume that a good percentage of them, you know, you know, understand that logically speaking or objectively speaking, it's hard to lay the blame at those 100%. parents. Right. Some of them just well, don't, they don't have the skills to be able to, you know, nobody gets a parenting license and, and it's, uh-huh. you know, and, and many parents would say, oh my gosh, you know, the famous thing, a parent will always say, oh, I made all my mistakes on my first kid. They're parents who make mistakes on all their kids. <laughs> Well, so first of all, the Hasidic community is nearly 100% survivors and descendants of survivors. Right. So that's the first thing that we have to keep in mind. If the general population has 38% of people lack secure attachment, and by the way, in the general population, you see now, we see now people that are running from their identities, they're doing all sorts of ways of kind of um, uh, rebelling and, and doing sort of outlandish things that sort of uh, deny where they come from. I believe that all of that fits into lack of secure attachment and you don't feel like you come from where you belong right, from right. and so you want to be different in some way. But yes, if you take a population that literally went through crazy trauma, right. had this PTSD, no way to process it, right. you better believe that now there's going to be generations of people that have their emotions all bottled up, don't know how to express it to their children, right. don't teach their children how to emotionally regulate. So yes, yeah, so so, this is a problem in larger society. Right. So if, so if you I, right. So if you were giving this seminar, you know, which by the way, it sounds like you're on the road to starting to give seminars on this topic. But if you were yeah, if you if you yeah. were, if you were giving a seminar, you know, with with you know, and a mixed crowd, Jews, non-Jews, professionals from around the country, they may turn to you and say, "Wait a second, Allison. Then why don't you have more members from the more liberal part 
of the Jewish community or more the liberal part of the Jewish Orthodox community? And that would be your answer, meaning the percentages, the trauma, the, the, the more extreme special circumstances in the Hasidic community? How would you address it? Yeah, so what I would say is that um, Malcolm started because a couple of ex-Hasidim came to us and asked for help. Right. Um, I would say what the thing that makes Malcolm specific, as opposed to any other type of trauma or lack of um, secure attachment of any other human being, is that they didn't just grow up in families missing this, where we would find in other communities. The schooling that they went to taught a very extreme and negative and shameful and fearful Judaism. So we actually have a job that's twofold with them. Um, making them aware of the pain that they went through and helping them understand that that's not Judaism, and then actually re-educating them on what Orthodox Judaism is. If somebody grew up modern Orthodox, likely they went to a reasonable school and heard positive messages about Hashem and mitzvot. The home may have been abusive. That's probably, uh, you know, uh, is connected to why they left. They don't want to be like where they came from, but they grew up with a positive Judaism within their schools. Um, for Mako members, it's twofold. It's the uh, extreme interpretation of Judaism, which, again, is not all Hasidic, it's not all right. Yeshivish, it's not all Chabad. It's the schools they went to, the teachers they came across that gave them these more negative messages. Um, and then it's uh, the home life as well. And on top of all that, this is the stuff that makes the news. This is the stuff right. that, um, you know, sure. and this is really our, our original mission was to reverse negative associations right. around Orthodox Jews. Right. And when they've learned such negative ideas about Orthodoxy, this really gets to the heart of why we were yeah. founded. Jews make news, especially when it's stories that are extreme or, you know, of fascination to the general audience, that's for sure. Allison Joseph is with us, Jew in the City. Uh, listen, I, I, you know, I, 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 first of all, great appreciation to you in general, and um, uh, the fact that people associate uh, you with us is always a big blessing for us. But uh, the least we could do is just remind people, and I'll do it. You don't have to do it. Is to remind people that one of the hardest things to do is to fundraise for a project. It's really easy to fundraise for a building, relatively speaking, and it's easy to fundraise for something that um, you know has a special designation or a specific event, much much easier. When you're when you're trying to fundraise for all these general um, uh, pursuits uh, that a great organization like Jew in the City is pursuing through Makom and Keter and Tikkun uh, in order to be out there and do what's right and represent us well, it's very very difficult to do. So Allison, I would assume on the Jew in the City website there are uh, there are at least one, if not multiple, opportunities for people to support your work. There is. There's a donate button up in the top right. We have a pop-up that's coming up now. Actually, August is Changemaker Month, and what we're asking everybody that's following and is a fan, put your money where your mouth is, and everyone has a different means, but we're asking whatever you could give on a monthly level, if it's a dollar, if it's $50, that will help us continue. You know, we have an ad coming out today that says you give seventeen ninety nine a month to this place, Netflix, to support content <laughs> that you know right. defames our community. Right. Could you give that much to an organization that is telling a different story? I just want to say a couple more things in terms of like big projects we have upcoming. For Ketzer, we recently discovered that the Muslim community has something called the Hollywood Bureau of Muslim Pack. They have relationships with literally every major studio and network. They get paid to create likable and three-dimensional Muslim characters. So we've been told for years, you can't do that. Hollywood is all Jewish. But we decided, no, we're going to. We're going to say that Jews are being beaten on the street. We insist on the treatment of any other endangered minority. And if the Hollywood execs want to represent their Hebrew school high holiday life, and they say that that's the character they know, that's fine. But if they're touching our community, they must go to an insider. So we're putting together a board of celebrities and Hollywood insiders to God willing um, establish 
JITC's Hollywood Bureau to make meetings with these big networks. So that's one thing on one end. Just make sure, just make, yeah. just make sure you're not too pro-Israel. That'll kill the whole project. <laughs> exactly, right? We can't talk about that, that we're Israel-loving Jews. Makom continues to grow. And on Tikkun, on that side, we've, thank God we've had some exciting successes there, which you can read about on Jew in the City. But our newest project is a school project. I discovered in the last couple of months there are a lot of black hat schools that are not nonprofits. They are for-profit um, you know, uh, uh, businesses run by one person. Right. Um, and, you know, knowing what I know about our community, knowing about, what I know about running a nonprofit where you have accountability, transparency, a board, um, this is how you keep a place safe. And I believe that the reason things are set up as a for-profit, you know, privately owned entity is just because it's how it's always been done since the shuttle and life continues. And what we realize is that in, until we get a basic foundation of accountability and transparency, kids can be in danger because we have stories at Mako where there are creepy principals that never quite broke the law but did some really awful things to children, and nobody could stop them because they ran the school. So we're building a kit right now to help for-profit schools become nonprofits with accountability and transparency. And so before we get to all the other changes in schools that we want to make to make them the healthiest environment for children, the first thing we want to create is a toolkit for transition so the basic foundation has accountability and transparency. Then the goal will be to spread that to any school um, that doesn't have that sort of setup. We're getting tremendous response from leadership and people within these organizations that deal with schools and deal with, you know, this community. And we're not doing this all on our own, but we are sort of being that nag, that nudge to say, like, we got to do this, we got to build this, we got to execute this. And I think that's the missing link. A lot of people want to do what's right, but they don't have the bandwidth to actually dream up the plan and execute it. And we are being the middlemen to make the thing between the dream and the execution happen. And so when you become a change maker, um, you can help these dreams become reality. Someone else might joke, uh, have someone else start your car, frankly. Be careful out there because I, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with the category that you're referring to when it comes to the schools, and it is a very, very arduous and uh, sensitive pursuit that you're undertaking. I hear that, um, and what I will tell you is that, um, A, I think part of what motivates me is that uh, I don't exactly know what I'm getting into, so I'm <laughs> stupid enough to jump in. Which, by the way, if I understood what Malcolm was going to be about, I would have been far too scared <laughs> to actually do such a thing. I only discovered sort of the heaviness of all these issues after we were too far gone to turn back. And so I'm doing this. It's very much sort of like, you know, a NASA Vinishma type of idea. I'm not really an expert in any of these areas. I always had a knack for explaining orthodoxy in a positive way. That is something that, you know, I could do naturally. These other areas have really been more like if we're the Kiddush Hashem brand and we tell the world how great it is to be from, how can we not fix these problems? That's right. really the way that I've approached Rabbanim and leadership when I've gone some of these different issues. I don't want to be a liar. I've told the world how great it is to be from and what great people we are. And if this, this, and this is going on, then I'm not telling the truth, and I, I can't bear to do that. And so that's actually been a really motivating factor. And so we will keep doing that. We will keep davening. But it's really the support of, you know, the people out there that are, are inspired by these projects. That's how we'll, we'll grow, because we will need, you know, a serious amount of revenue to really make these things happen. And, and, you've, uh, and you've had the best of the other world. It's not like you're— Yes, you're, and I—correct. I—, you, I and here's the thing, because I had secure attachment growing up, I never actually wanted to, like, throw away my past life. I brought my whole family with me, everybody right. from today. I, I cook fake tray food every night for dinner <laughs> because I love my childhood recipes. And I would say even on the Kiru side, to be honest, I think we have to consider this um, in the world of Kiru. 
are our people that were being Makariv, are they throwing away their past identities? That's unhealthy. Right. Or are they incorporating them in? Are they coming to us in a healthy position? If we're right. bringing more people with lack of secure attachment into the community, we're only bringing the next generation of Mako members in, essentially, because their children, their children come to us. You must love the Beyond Burger, because you can make it into a cheeseburger and everything. I like the Impossible Burger better, but I will eat both, and I really do love them. And I saw somewhere that they may be able to make pig kosher, and this may be a sign that Mashiach is coming, and I would agree. Um, <laughs> I hear that. Uh, there are a couple of things that um, <laughs> that I've got to uh, close with here. Um, I'll circle back in a minute to, to my unorthodox life, because I think there is one point I want to make that I'm curious about your reaction but you did write an article, and we've talked about this before because you always talk about the uh, the modesty issue and how the um, uh, the choice for you know how modest a, a woman wants to dress, whether it be in Hollywood, sports, etc. You you address the Olympics. What horrified me about that uh, article, frankly, was I didn't realize that all these immodest outfits, these immodest uniforms are regulated that there's an actual the Olympics, yeah. Oh, yeah, Olympi- yeah an Olympic committee that requires a woman who's part of a specific I I frankly thought the reason they're dressed that way is because you know swimming wise sports wise volleyball wise track wise they felt this is the best result you know the best thing to 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 wear or not wear in order to have the best time the best chance to win etc but this is regular they won't let you on the field if you you don't dress a certain way that's what outraged right. me about the whole thing Right. So, so um, when I wrote the article originally, it did not have the rule book rules about uh, leotards and handball uniforms. But the, uh, the editor, um, it was published in the Washington Post and Religion News Service. Um, she said, "Let's add the exact rules in." Yes. Yeah, so, on one hand, in sports themselves, a lot of these rules are, are dictated. But I will say that I think we should not discount the messaging that comes from marketing and comes from seeing basically every attractive woman in the world as you're growing up in secular society. I got messages very early on as a secular woman, you know, that who was slim, that it was sort of my responsibility to show my body off. That they were somehow I owed that to the world as a sign of being young and fit, that I should show my body off to the world. And if you look at how your average boy or man is dressed, they're essentially covering upper arm, upper leg, and everything in between. Really all the halachic points of what a woman is supposed to cover. Right. And I think um, with our term, the skin gap, in this op-ed that I wrote about the skin gap, that it's at the Olympics, and it's being recognized at the Olympics, but it's actually everywhere else, too. Even if it's not technically on the rule books. When we go to the store and we see certain options with less fabric for women and we open up a magazine or we see, you know, any type of media, walk down the street, it's weird for a woman to wear more clothes. Even today, I will tell you, if I look at like a from wedding and I see how I dress in our community, the women wearing just as much clothing as the men, it still looks a little bit weird to me because what my eye is trained to for the rest of society is that women's bodies are exposed at a formal affair, you know? And so until we can start to change the expectation in what girls and women um, feel like they're supposed to wear and show off the skin gap, which is this imbalance of expectations, which makes girls and women feel like their bodies are on display. It will persist. And what I believe it leads to is a feeling of body dissatisfaction because if your body's on display, you have to constantly be worried about how does it look, how does it look compared to yesterday, what is it turning into tomorrow, and if a woman's sort of greatest thing they contribute is their body, then essentially there's an expiration date on a woman's usefulness. 
and the skin gap closes if a woman exceeds a certain number in age or pounds. Yeah, understood. Uh, you know, I, I, look, uh, my wife and I have raised two daughters, and uh, well, this is somewhat related to what you're saying, but one of the frustrating things to me is that um, uh, the, the more, how do I put this, uh, the more um, one explores the Jewish community, the more one realizes that these are the only female role models for our daughters. These are the only yep. females that are featured in uh, in print ads, in photography, yep. in videos, etc. And I, and I wonder if you have a, 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 a public opinion on this, that that's one of the reasons why I have always felt that Orthodox publications should go out of their way to print pictures of, of women in our community dressed properly who are real role models for our daughters. 100%. 100%. We need to see healthy examples of, you know, the possibilities that are out there and not have just one small idea of what we must conform to. <laughs> my, my wife said to me that she was reading an article on Shabbos about a Rebbitzin, and the picture in the article was her husband. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I mean, give me a break. Finally, circling way back to our original topic, and I apologize for all the time, and after Sukkot, you must come in here for a full face-to-face conversation where we will discuss uh, both kosher cheeseburgers and non-kosher cheeseburgers, because, of course, one of the things I always <laughs> ask you is why on earth would someone from your background uh, want to become Orthodox? And I, and I, I believe you, me, I'll be asking you that for the next 20 years, hopefully, like I have <laughs> for the last 15, 20 years. Uh, the last thing is... I. I feel bad for people like you when it comes to the situation of the series My Unorthodox Life, and I'll tell you why. Your your best argument is the one people take least seriously. Because I honestly do believe, I think you had three arguments in the TMZ piece, so all presented really well, of course, not criticizing that. But I think the best one, logically and from people in our uh, community, is the one that it's completely out of context, is the one that you you have no clue and I by the way I'm talking about the subjects in the document in the series and the people uh you know watching you have no clue what our community is really like you cannot even understand how the restrictions of our community uh, um uh, teamed up with the positive aspects of our community create such a wonderful atmosphere you know in most cases and i think the out of context argument is never taken seriously for a variety of reasons i think the media you know poo-poos it in every which way shape and form especially when it comes to accusations against people they never ever uh, consider that when someone says you need context that you know you do need context and can look cancel culture is a perfect example of that right yeah right. You, you don't need context um, and and I, I think that your most potent argument, unfortunately, is the one they take least seriously. What do you think? I mean, I think um, I think people that support the show will find every reason to support it, and people that are against the show will, uh, you know, find different reasons to be against it. And it seems like there's actually a lot of people that like the show. Um, my friend, mine biologist, posted my TMZ article. And I've been hearing people say, oh, no one's taking the show so seriously. No one's watching it. That's not true. A lot of her fans, and she is very pro-Jewish on her platform. A lot of her fans were like, this show is amazing. It's about an empowered woman. So um, I have relatives <laughs> who've watched it multiple times. Of course wow. people are obsessed with it. And I can't blame them. If they enjoy it, they enjoy the content, even if it's all fiction. Look, it, it could all, I, I think, the, it, I think the most important thing, really, is that... Um, Restrictions have to be choice-based restrictions. So, yes, there's so much positivity and beauty and meaning, 
But when we restrict ourselves, we have to be the ones, you know, dressing modestly. We need to be the ones sending ourselves to minion. We need to be the ones fasting. If we, if any Jew is living under duress where they don't feel free to be able to choose to do or not do, that becomes an abusive situation. Those are the types of cases that we see. And so as long as we are freely choosing, you know, a person can choose to uh, run a marathon and do what it takes to uh, regiment themselves to be able to have such an achievement. A person can decide that they're not eating healthfully and decide to make different choices in what they eat. We understand that we can have a goal that we think is better for ourselves and it will require us to restrain ourselves in some way to have that goal. And somehow that same um, idea is not understood that if we have a spiritual goal, we may uh, restrain ourselves and restrict ourselves in order to achieve a greater good by the end of it, um, which is very sad. And But of course, it has to come from choice. Yeah, understood. Well said. Easier to fundraise for a building than for a project, right? <laughs> it is. It is. But you know what? Um, what I will tell you um, is that every time Netflix puts out another one of these shows, I feel like more and more it's galvanizing uh, the community. And we've been doing this at Jew in the City since 2007. This is not some new campaign that's right. come out in light of this show. Right. This has been the drum that we've beating. We've been dealing with, you know, the ex-Haredi crisis for years now already. Um, and so I think if people are seeing more and more that this, these are issues that are bothering them. They were filming three other um, ex-Orthodox shows after Unorthodox. One of them, a uh, fourth one, is My Unorthodox Life. There are at least three more coming out that we know about, right. plus a young adult novel that is coming out as a movie. There is money in the genre. This is not stopping anytime soon, but we are going to do our best to fight it, and we hope that you know listeners will help us. A hundred percent. I hope so as well. Go to Jew in the City. Uh, go to the Jew in the City website, everybody, and uh, donate and uh, support the great work of uh, Jew in the City, including uh, Makom, Keter, Tiku, and all these different facets that uh, that Jew in the City is um, is um, helping to uh, helping to um, uh, promote and fix and whatever does need promotion and fixing in our community. Um, Allison, I take this opportunity to wish you a happy, healthy, and sweet new year. Continued good luck. And I hope that, uh, uh once the holidays, uh, come to their conclusion, we'll be able to get together and, uh, and do this in person. I think the, uh, audience is very appreciative of the work that you do. Thank you so much. And same to you and yours. Thanks so much. Allison Joseph's Jew in the City Speaks is our program every single Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern time here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Jew in the City, as you heard Allison say, in existence since 2007 doing amazing work, including all this uh, uh, work that she did in the, in the aftermath of uh, My Unorthodox Life, the Netflix series. And as you heard, a lot of other things going on. A lot of other things going on. And <laughs> she has spent a lot of time trying to understand the psychology uh, behind what so many are going through in our community. Kolaka vote. Tuesday morning broadcast. Plenty more coming up on JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Jew in the City, Allison Josephs. Rabbi Gideon Black is next. He's the brand new director of New York NCSY. He joined us to discuss his new position. Rabbi Gideon Black, a recent guest on JM and the AM. Here he is on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Speaking of NCSY, NCSY has named Rabbi Gideon Black the new chief executive officer of the New York region. Rabbi Black succeeds Rena Emerson. Following her appointment as NCSY's National Chief Operating Officer, Rabbi Black joins NCSY following a decade working with the OUJLIC, first as a campus rabbi at NYU and then in national roles, Director of Professional Recruitment and Leadership Development, 
O-U-J-L-I-C, which I remind you is one of our favorite components of what the OU does, and we have a million favorite components of what the OU does, is the OU's premier organization providing religious resources, rabbinical support, and community leadership to Jewish students on secular college campuses. Rabbi Gideon Black, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Mazel tov on the appointment. Um, Thank you. It's funny, when 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 these things happen in life, <laughs> when someone who's really qualified and very talented moves from one area to the next, we sometimes worry about the area that they're leaving. Uh, as you heard me say, JLIC is one of the favorites of ours, of what the uh, OU does, and they do a lot of things, obviously, nationwide for people of all ages. But what they're doing on the college campus is amazing. By the way, I got a call recently from someone whose who's, who's, um, child is about to go to a college campus that does not have a JLIC presence, begging me, is there anything I could do to help the OU establish a JLIC presence on that campus? That 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 is quite a uh, a request in and of itself for my black, isn't it? It is, and it's and it's a compliment. I, I think that's a, a great compliment, but it's understandable that there needs to be a focus on certain campus communities to build those up and strengthen those as places where kids who want strong Jewish life, uh, you know, we can't expect the community to ensure that every secular college campus in America is an, is an option. That, that's not a good use of, uh, I guess, of communal resources. So, yeah. you know, we... JLIC is is uh, currently on 24 different campuses and, wow. and that gives families who care about about ensuring that their child has access to to an inspiring college experience with tefillah and and chesed opportunities and Shabbos meals and and just a good avira that's that's well supported so um I think there's a there's an opportunity for for JLIC to continue expanding a little bit but 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 um you know that there are some amazing amazing campus options for those who are uh, yeah. seeking that type of experience. They'll continue, I'm sure, to expand one step at a time. And it's a bit unfair of me. I should be focusing more on your present and future than your past, but I can't get past the whole JLIC thing. So just humor me for another moment. Did you leave them in a strong position? Are they a- as strong as ever? And I say that because someone like myself who sees the work that's being done, it is pretty remarkable how talented the people are, the couples are, that you've placed on campuses around the country? Yeah, Nachum, I, I did. I, I really feel um, I left them in a position of tremendous strength for, for two reasons. First of all, the year that the OUJLIC has had during COVID, we, we were nervous. Like right. any nonprofit, we were expecting a, a challenging year. How are we going to serve students when so many campuses are shut down, when dorm buildings are closed, when classes are online? And... Um, Thanks to the the leadership of Rabbi Ilan Haber, the national director of OUJLIC, and uh, and Rabbi Menachem Schrader, our founding right. founding director, um, just a tremendous you know this overused word of pivot that that every yeah. company and business have been using the the way that these couples pivoted and realized you know you don't you don't need your community to be in one place or your students Balabatim to be coming to you in order to be serving them. As long as you know how to knock on a door and, and deliver a, a, a container of chicken soup and, uh, you know, <laughs> give a shear online or whatever it might be, call someone up, you can, um, you can certainly uh, lead people and inspire people and, and give, give the love that so many people needed. So, 
JLI season ha- had a really strong year during a year and a half during COVID, thank God. And um, but, but more than that, my um, my successor is a, a rock star, um, Mrs. Tal Atia, um, was hired um, very swiftly. I think she was already in the crosshairs of uh, JLIC leadership, and um, she comes to um, OUJLIC's national staff, having spent four years as a as a campus director. Tal was um, was working on campus at Brandeis University for two years with her husband, Rav Isaac Atia. And um, and for the last two years, uh, Isaac and Tal were uh, working at Binghamton University. So mm. she's seen two premier sort of JLIC campuses up close. She's an amazing educator and um, beloved, um, you know, Rebbitson by her students. And so she is uh, she's going to go on to, to, to great things, I have no doubt. Wow. Uh, they're doing remarkable work at so many places, as you pointed out. Rabbi Gideon Black is with us, brand new CEO of the New York Region of NCSY. Now, um, frankly, there are many people who call you a rock star, uh, and, now, and now you're bringing your stardom <laughs> to New York NCSY. Now, the impression I am under, as I am a, you know, a, a casual yet uh, observant observer, is that New York NCSY has had some unbelievable years recently, and they are flourishing um, in terms of what they're doing for Jewish youth, even during covid in the New York region. I mean, that's got to be, I don't want to say scary for you, but it's got to be quite a challenge thinking about how to take them a really well-run uh, outfit to the next level. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. It is a really well-run outfit. Um, and if I just, you know, like they say in medical school, um, first do no harm. Like, <laughs> first of all, like if... if if I can just not mess things up, they ain't. Like that, that's that's going to be um, an achievement. But, but but seriously, I think the first the first job is to take that amazing work um, that you're you're referring to and just and just be telling that story. Right. Um, I think I think so much of the work is done these um, important one-on-one relationships um, and in public schools and, and and sort of in places that the the community might not see so well. Um, I mean, you know, not necessarily behind closed doors, but in a, in a way that isn't as loud and proud um, as it should be. And and I think that you know, in the noise and excitement and busyness of New York City and all the amazing um, Torah efforts and, and nonprofit Jewish work that's happening in New York, there's just there's 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 so much going on. And so New York NCSY sometimes flies under the radar a little bit and I want to I want to really do a great job of just telling the story of these amazing McCarvim and, and and community leaders and people who care so much about these teens in New York and and, and just make sure that the, the broader community is is aware of the the selfless work that's taking place day in day out yeah it's important you have a lot of talent here in New York a lot of talent uh, under uh, your leadership now as CEO of the New York region and that is a great story to tell. Uh, are you going to be able to get in, – I know that, you know, um, uh, being part of the public school system, and I don't want to say that uh, uh, you're an official part, but being able to utilize uh, public schools for clubs, after-school events, et cetera, uh, has been a key component to New York NCSY. Will you be able to get back into those buildings and attract students from the public schools now that, again, we've learned to deal with COVID somewhat? Look, the, the situation's changing on a daily basis, and so what, what we can predict on uh, Rosh Chodesh Elul might be different on, uh, you know, 
Rosh Hashanah or uh, or even in two weeks from now. So right. uh, that's true. You know, we're we're but what we've learned is how to utilize different spaces. Literally, like if we can't be in the school, but we can be in the gym, outdoor basketball courts, on the steps, right. you know, outdoor spaces, but also coffee shops, um, a lot of ingenuity, parking <laughs> lots. Um, you know, the the we're no longer as limited by by the space. Uh, you know, we're able to think a lot more creatively about how we meet people, how we reach people, where where we're engaging them. Um, so. So um, we're not worried about sort of the changing dynamic of, uh, you know, with, with, with COVID and if, as things become, you know, more open and right. more closed and, you know, we're, um, whatever happens, God willing, people should have, you know, a, a season ahead without any. Right. Um, but tell, tell us. Or anything and, and tell and us. We've got to prioritize safety. But, uh, yeah. Tell us. We're, where, tell we're, us. We're gonna, Tell us where we can go, and we'll adjust accordingly. That's it's basically the attitude. Exactly, right? exactly. We're we set sail. We're on our way. We're doing this, and we'll uh, whatever the course needs to be. Um, we're going to, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, Rabbi Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Nachum um, was one of my was one of my mentors, and someone who had a great great influence on me. And I yeah. and when I was deciding. Um, should I be a rabbi, and where should I learn for smicha, and, and what should I, what type of rabbi should be, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He gave me a great, a great uh, metaphor. He said, Gideon, it's like um, this was back in the day when we still used, uh, you know, um, sat nav GPS like Garmin, <laughs> right. necessarily just plugging in on your phone. Right. He said it's like when you dial in an, uh, the address in one in your car navigation system. He said, what if you take a wrong turn um, on one of those things, do you get lost? I said, no. He said, no, it, it, it takes a moment to recalibrate. But as long as you've typed in a legitimate address, as long as you know where you're going, then it, it's going to work out a path to get there. Might might have taken a few seconds longer or taken a different right. route. But um, he, you know, he said it's the same thing with, with your goals, with your organizational directors. If, as a team, you know where you're going. If you, if you have an end goal clearly in sight, if that's a legitimate and holy pursuit, then how you end up getting there you know, Rabbanu Shalom will will yeah. will work it out. There's there's multiple ways that there are there's certain firm sort of truths and, and goals that we have to be working towards. But as yeah. long as we're flexible on the path, but uh, very firm and fixed on on the goal, then um, we're going to be okay. Well, I can tell you the attitude that your colleagues had to making sure that every child who wanted to have a great NCSY summer had it. This on the day where my child arrived back this morning from NCSY Colel. And uh, they knew the ultimate goal, and believe me, it was a circuit. What's the word? <laughs> it took a long time. Through, I'm not going to try. <laughs> right, through a crazy route to get there, but they got there. And that's, uh, again, as you just said, keep your eye on the prize and just make sure to uh, uh, adjust accordingly. And also, it's funny you quoted Rabbi Sachs about that because I think Rabbi Sachs has been pretty open publicly about his, about his own uh, uh, journey uh, to, um, uh, to the rabbinate. Uh, where he was, you know, he tells that story with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, where he was also, you know, deciding what to do and how to go, and he he also sought advice from someone who he felt was greater than he, just like you did. Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, that was his, his famous uh, journey. I think it was the summer of '68. Right. He was uh, studying philosophy at Cambridge University, looking for direction. I think he realized he had talent that right. meant um, just going in the sort of the path of academia um, was going to be. 
um, you know, not fulfill the talent and the and the responsibility he felt for the community. And um, you know, his horizons were bigger. And he came to the states. He spoke to um, he spoke to a few different rabbanim. But I think the two sig- most significant encounters he had was with Rav Soloveitchik right. at YU, and uh, then uh, with the the Rebbe at Seven Seventy. And those were the conversations that you know that ended up reorienting him and um, guiding his ship towards, you know, the, the vast impact that he had. And v- vast is right. Rabbi Gideon Black is with us, CEO of the New York Region, brand new CEO of the New York Region of NCSY. Um, when you're on the campus, in the NYU campus now, how long were you there at NYU? I was there for four years. That NYU campus now, um, for those of us here who are here downtown, and I think others uh, as well who observe what's going on, forget COVID for a second, has become a, a real attraction to Jewish students from everywhere. I think you'd agree with that. Um, and there's really, I mean, people of all backgrounds uh, are coming there and participating. When you're there and you're dealing with the college students, can, can you tell which ones were involved in Jewish youth groups going growing up like NCSY and which ones were not? That's a great question. Look, you, you never want to um, judge a student and, and assume that because they had a strong yeshiva education or because they were part of NCSY or some, you know, ha- had a, a, a deep connection that therefore they're going to be, um, you know, really involved in what I'm doing on campus. Right. Um, sometimes, you know, some, some kids unfortunately go to campus looking to, to step out the bubble and, right. and sort of find their own path. Right. And you got to you know, give them the space and the breathing room to, to do that and respect their their journey, as they say, and then, but but, but never let go of the relationship, never stop mm-hmm. loving them, just give them the time that they need, because sometimes if it's not on day one of their freshman year, um, it might be on the, you know, day one of their junior year that they're ready to, you know, reconnect in a substantial way to the community. So as long as the personal relationship's there, then in terms of the, you know, being part of the Shabbos community or davening or learning or the chesed opportunities that are going on, um, then you can reconnect them to, to those important things. But of course, someone who's um, been part of NCSY, for example, and the, and the ruach that, that brings, if you've gone to NCSY Shabbatonim in your teens and then you arrive on campus, you're going to be a, you know, up front and center running that ruach and bringing that ruach to others um, in your college years. No question about it, boy. I'll tell you, uh, I have to imagine that this experience you had on the college campus is really going to help you in this new position. I just have to assume that. Uh, not that there isn't a difference between reaching high schoolers and reaching a, you know, a, a college kids. I get there is a difference and a different approach probably. Uh, but just what's, what, what's, a, what's attractive to kids today and the approach that, you know, that older people may not appreciate, that people who you know, are – Hanging out with high schoolers and college people would appreciate in terms of what their needs are, in terms of what they, you know, need to hear from their supervisors and teachers. Um, I think that goes a long way. So I can imagine that your experience on the college campus is going to help a lot in this new job. Thank you. Go willing. Rabbi Micha Greenland, International Director of NCSY, said we are excited for I Black to sharpen and implement his ambitious vision in leading New York NCSY's program in order to better reach and impact the next generation of Jewish teens throughout the New York area. I uh, could not have said it better myself. Or by Gideon Black, I wish you mazal tov. You're the new CEO of the New York region of NCSY. I'm sure you're off to a uh, great start already. Best regards to uh, your entire staff and all the people who make New York NCSY so great. 
Thank you so much. Such a privilege to be with you this morning, Nachum. I appreciate that, and Shana Tova to you. Rosh Chodesh Elul, Monday, JM in the AM. It is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com and the Nachum Single Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. That was my conversation with Rabbi Gideon Black. Rabbi Pesach Krohn was with us recently to discuss the brand new Yom Narayim with the Magid. It's a book that you can get at artscroll.com. Always use promo code radio. Here's my conversation with Rabbi Pesach Krohn on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. JM in the AM. Well, approaching my 40th year in this industry... If I say that there's somebody who's among my favorite guests, I would have to assume that's a pretty, pretty big compliment. That's why I was disappointed when it looked like uh, Rabbi Krohn had some type of last-minute emergency bris and wouldn't be able to join us this morning. But Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, we have made contact, and contact rather, and Rabbi Pesach Krohn is with us live via telephone. The book is entitled Yamim Norayim with the Magid, Elevating Stories and Insights from Elul through Yom Kippur. Rabbi Pesach Krohn is a master storyteller, an amazing author, a great lecturer, and a wonderful friend of JM in the AM. Rabbi Krohn, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. I appreciate all your compliments, and the best one, of course, is being a wonderful friend of JM in the AM and with you, of course. <laughs> I, I thank you for that very, very much. It's been a long time since we've spoken. I assume you've been, you know, your, your book is to get us into the Yamim Norayim mode, is to get us into an appropriate mood and a spiritual and elevated mood for Elul, the Aseris Yimei Tshuva, Tishrei, etc. I assume because you just wrote the book, you've probably been in this mode for the last 18 months or so. That is, well, not 18 months, but probably since last year, uh, after the Haggadah came out, Gedalia Zlato had said to me um, that he thought it would be a great idea to do something for Rosh Hashanah and Elul and Atesh Yimei And so uh, you're right, since last summer, I definitely have been in that Elul mode. As a matter of fact, um, I just got back from Croatia, which one day you must go there. It's one of the most gorgeous countries in the world. And we were on a yacht for four days. I mean, I didn't stay for the whole trip. There, the rest of the trip's coming back today. But um, throughout the four days that I was there, I spoke 18 times. And when I left, people told me they never had such a preparation for Elo. So every speech that I spoke about was based on something that I wrote about in the book. And uh, there were just so many fascinating insights. To me, one of the greatest things that I learned writing this book, I'll tell you, you know, we've been doing apples and honey right since we're children. Yeah. And the Bnei Yisoska says that the word devash, dollar base shin, is equal 306. And the two words, av farachamim, the father of compassion, which is referring to Hashem, is also 306. And that's a hint when we have the uh, apple in the honey that the Avarachman should give us a sweet year. I never, I never thought of that. I never heard of that, and I thought it's great. Amazing, amazing. I there, there's so much I want to speak to you about regarding this book. Um, you have to start. Uh, you, you know, we let me backtrack for a moment. We have dedicated uh, the month of Elul, like we did earlier uh, this uh, year in Nissan, uh, to a Chesed campaign. All we're doing 
is encouraging people to do nice things for others. That is our goal, not specifically pushing anything. Not, we have recommendations we make, uh, and, and we talk about discoveries that we've made in the world of chesed just to open people's eyes to it. Uh, but we just talk about doing nice things and thinking of others, whether it's, whether it's financial or otherwise. You must, because you are the master storyteller, and we are hopefully coming out of what has been this terrible COVID time. You must take us back to April of last year. You must tell the story to this audience, even though they could read it in the book, but don't worry, there's hundreds of others that can read the book. You must tell the story of what happened in Lakewood, New Jersey, when it was discovered that an older woman would be alone for the Pesach Seder. I'm assuming you know what story I'm talking about. Oh, my goodness, of course I know. And I cry every time I tell the story. I'm getting even choked up thinking about it. And what I am so impressed with you is that you have chosen literally the best story in the book. <laughs> and and the proof of the pudding is that I put it as the first story, being good, but even being great. And uh, that is really one of the greatest stories ever. And it was told to me by the woman to whom it happened, Mrs. Devorah Monk, and she told me that as the COVID was reaching its peak right after Purim and heading towards Pesach, she was so frightened because she knew that she would have to have the Seder alone. Now, she had moved to Lakewood years before. Her husband never had passed away shortly after they moved to Lakewood. But she had children and grandchildren. And she told me, and these are her words, ever since I was a child, I was never alone for a Shabbos Ayantif. I was either with my parents, my husband, my children, my grandchildren. And now I was going to have to do the Pesach Seder alone. And it was very daunting and very frightening because even though that her kids, lived 15-minute walk away and a five-minute, it's three-minute drive, but they could not come to her home because of quarantine and distancing. So one day, um, her neighbor, and I spoke to the neighbor, but the neighbor doesn't want I should use the name, so I made up the name Becker, and Mrs. Becker called Mrs. Monk and said, look, your dining room window opens up to a little garden, and right on the other side of that little garden is our living room window. We are willing to take our dining room table, move it into the living room. We'll have the Seder in the living room. We'll open up the window. You open up your window. You'll be able to hear us. We'll be able to hear you. The garden is very small. And like this, we can have the Seder together. You'll be in your home and we'll be in our home. And Mrs. Monk told me, she said to them, you would do that for me? You know, that's amazing. She said, of course, Mrs. Becker said, you're like a bubby, like a grandma to our children. They love you. Of course, we'll be happy to do it. So she was so thrilled with that idea. The next morning, Mr. Becker came and said something that's so incredible. He said, look, you know, my wife told me the idea that she told you, and we think it's a great idea, but we don't want to try it out the first time, the first night of face-off. What if it doesn't work? So what are we going to do for the second night? So let's have a trial run. Let's do a Shabbos Agodol. Shabbos Agodol is a few days before Pesach. So like this, we're going to move our dining room table, Shabbos Agadol, into the living room. And Friday night, we'll have the meal. You keep your dining room window open. Let's see if you could hear our Kiddush and our Zemiris. And if it works, then we know it's going to work for Pesach. So sure enough, they had a trial run, and it was unbelievable. And Erev Pesach, she told me, she gets a knock on the door, and the Becker children are there with a Seder plate. She couldn't believe it. Not only did they do a trial run, now they're bringing her a Seder plate <laughs> with the carpas, the mora, the haraisas, the salt water, everything. And the Seder went fabulous. It was till 1 o'clock in the morning. 
Now, at 1.15, the way I tell the story, she gets a knock on the door, and she's surprised who's coming 1.15 in the morning. And we all know he came a half hour ago. <laughs> who's, coming? who's coming now? And she opens the door, and it's her grandchildren and her children. They stopped there, stay there, and they walked over to Oma, which is the way you say grandma in German, and they wanted to know how was the Seder. So Mrs. Monk says, what do you mean how was the Seder? It was fabulous. It was amazing. So her son Yehuda said, Ma, okay, I understand it was nice, but what do you mean it was amazing and so fabulous? She said, you know, I've been living next to these people for five years. I had no idea that they're Yekesha people, German people. They sang the same songs that Daddy sang all the years. I had no idea they knew these songs. That they were German people, the way they sang Aviru, Avihisha, Amdan, Dayenu, just like Daddy did. And her son stops laughing. So Mrs. Monk told me, she said, Yehuda, what are you laughing? What's so funny? He said, Ma, I didn't want to tell you. But a couple of days before Yantif, they called me and they asked me if I'd make the voice recording of Old and Nagunan that Daddy sang at the Seder so we could learn them and sing them for you so you would feel comfortable. And it's unbelievable. And then she told me, I didn't know this that the Yekisha people, the German people, they sing three songs at the end of the Seder. Right. Uh, they sing Enkelakenu, and that's what they sing. And I think that's the greatest, that's the greatest of all. That shows how great we can all be. It, it is a remarkable story. It, it hit me so, uh, uh, so hard because this is exactly what our Elul Chesed campaign here is about, just to think of unique wonderful gestures that one or one's family can do for someone else or someone else's family, not necessarily financial. This wasn't a financial obligation. It was creativity to make sure that somebody wouldn't be alone. And then on top of that, as you described with the recordings, et cetera, to make sure that somebody would feel as if they were home. Uh, now, I'll tell you another thought based on your campaign. Something that I, it occurred to me only when I was writing this safer or book, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> with the apples and the honey. You know, I once was in Manchester in England, and I met a fabulous woman, never who was suffering from MS. Her name is Riverton Javi Wachshel. Since then, she's passed away. But she was writing a book, and in that book, which is called Facing Adversity with Faith, Facing Adversity with Faith, uh, Feldheim published it, she wanted me to look it over and give her a letter um, of approbation, which, of course, I did. But... She had an expression in there that was one of the greatest expressions I've ever heard. It's not her, it's her idea. She got it from someplace else. But she wrote, any fool can count the seeds in one apple, but only the highest power, Hashem, knows how many apples there are in one seed. Mm. And, and to me, that is so great. And you know what occurred to me? What you're doing now is making a chesed program People are planting seeds of chesed. Yeah. And so it occurred to me, maybe, that there's an additional thing that we can learn from the apples and honey. Take a look at the seeds in the apple. You want to have a sweet new year? Plant seeds for other people. Do chesed for other people. It Make a sweet new year for others, and then you'll have it for yourself in that way. But look at the seeds in the apple and realize that every seed has so many apples, especially when you plant a seed of chesed, a seed of kindness. And, and, and seeds of, of hope and confidence. And on top of that, and I know I'm using the same name you're going to use because you changed the name, but on top of that, the Becker children and grandchildren, imagine what they are going to remember about growing up and how that's going to impact the way they're going to act toward others when they get older. That is so true. That is so true. 
It's the greatest lesson in Chinuch, 100%. Rabbi Pesach Krohn is with us. The book is called Yamim Narayim with the Magid, Elevating Stories and Insights from Elul through Yom Kippur. Go to artscroll.com, always use promo code radio. Go to artscroll.com, always use promo code radio. By the way, you will see many, many more titles than just this one for Rabbi Pesach Krohn when you go to artscroll.com. Uh, plus DVDs and so many other things that he has uh, narrated over the years and introduced to us. Uh, so check it out. If you just search his name, you will be mesmerized by uh, the collection. Uh, Rabbi Crone, I'm sorry to do this to you and put you on the spot, but I wrote a note to myself, and and I just don't remember where exactly the story was when I read it. And you know, one of the reasons I want you to address this, frankly, is I've been to um, Brisson. Oh, by the way, is there a Briss today? Because some of the guys want to know if they can avoid Tachanun on a Thursday. Are you going anywhere today or not? In, uh, I'm going to Ontario to film. You know, usually in Ellil, I go to Toronto and I go to England, but because of the travel restrictions and quarantine and distancing, I can't travel there. So I'm on my way to uh, our dear friend, you know, my son-in-law, Hananya, yep. and does Koran Multimedia. So I'm going to be filming in about 10 minutes. Okay. Cool. So, so at least I know now if I make you late, Hananya likely won't be angry at me. Uh, but, um, but so there's no brisk today, folks. Those 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 guys out there that were hoping to follow Rabbi Krohn around, sorry about that. It's a Thursday that's going to demand full Tachanun. Anyway, so I go to, you know, I, I'm sometimes at relatives or friends' um uh, Brisson, and frankly, I'm a little surprised by the names that the parents give their children because names in Jewish tradition are very, very important. In fact, you write that it's more—it's not only important because of our tradition and you know using appropriate names, but names stick to a person. And I'll give you an opportunity in a moment to elaborate on that. But then it was amazing when it, during that story. I mean. At my age, I never realized that the word shame, which is name, are the two middle letters of the four letters of neshama, which, of course, is soul. I just discovered that from your book. Do you sometimes, even though we always say if they're old enough to get married, they're old enough to choose a name for their child, I get that. I'm a libertarian also, so I get that. But do you sometimes roll your eyes when you hear some of the names that babies are given these days? Well, you know, I, I try to encourage people to always use a name that's meaningful and that the child will be proud of. I remember Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky told me that it's very, very important, especially with Yiddish names. We use Yiddish names, but you want to use a name that a child will be proud of. And, and you really have a very big responsibility. Besides, the Gemara tells us, Shema Garim, your name has an influence. Now, I'm going to tell you something about my name. You're not going to believe this, but you know, my first name is Pesach, right? Everybody right. knows that. Right. Now, Aramaic, or when you learn the halachas of Pesach, Pesach is really a combination of two words. Pesach, a mouth that speaks, right? Yep. Now, my middle name is Yosef, which means a lot. Now, I guarantee you that when my mother named me Pesach Yosef after her father, she was not thinking that I was going to be a speaker who doesn't stop speaking. But that's what Pesach Yosef is all about. I got that. And also, we should mention, here's why I wanted you to elaborate a bit. It's not just an appropriate name that we want and something that's meaningful to the family, as you just said. I mean, I could cite so many examples of that where people have a meaningful connection to a certain name. Uh, but on top of that, you know, you just said what you said about your own name. It is uncanny 
and, and I hope you agree with me on this, it's uncanny how often someone's name describes their personality or represents them in some way. I'll tell you why you're a thousand percent right, because the Arizal writes that when parents give a name to a child, they are blessed with a certain Ruach HaKadosh that they don't even realize. In other words, they think that they may have named them after an uncle, an aunt, or an Adam Godel or whatever, but there was a reason, Ruach HaKadosh, why they had to choose that name, because the name really does define the person. There's no question about it. Yeah. And the Rebbe Rebbe Limelech and Pashas Bamidbar writes that the child's neshama is connected to the neshama of the person for whom he's named for. So, of course, you want to name after good people and Mazeldika people. Yeah. It's an important message, and sometimes I think the younger people, boy, do I sound like an old-fashioned guy, huh? <laughs> sometimes I think yeah. the younger people have to be reminded of that. You know what's funny, and, and based on this conversation, I think people are picking it up. We, we associate Elul with fear. We associate Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment, with fear. But there's a lot of non-fear stories uh, in this book. There's a lot of inspiring tales and insights that tell you that Elul and Slichos and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are a lot more than just being afraid of the one above. What can you tell us about those who who seem to uh, obsess over the fear of this time of year? Well, that's a good question. I, I would say the first thing that comes to my mind is what the Bob of Rebbe, Rav Shlema Havasam, Zechatadik Lavrocha, said about Elo. We all know that Elo stands for Anila Doidi Vidoidi Li. You know what he said it stands for? Echad Loila Echad Lachatas. And he explained it in a very beautiful way. He said sometimes a person looks back at the year that he had and he says, you know, listen, I, I was very good this past year. I did my daf, I went to the minion, I was kind to my wife and kids, you know, I gave stucker. So we say to that person, you're right. You had a great year, but this is a time when you have to get even higher. Elul is a time of improvement. So for those people who had a great year and felt they were fine, they should go even higher. It's not a question of fear. It's a question of motivation, that each year we have to be better than the year before. And then, of course, there are those people, those people who may have done some things that they're not proud of in the past year, so of course they have to improve. But the Echad L'Oila aspect of Elo is a time for introspection and a time for improvement and to grow. Yeah, and there's so many areas that we can grow in, and many of them you address in this book. By the way, I have to mention, because you said that the uh, that Hanania is responsible now for your virtual trip to Toronto, right? We're giving him that responsibility. But next Saturday night, if I'm not mistaken, you're actually coming to the Lower East Side. Am I right about that? Yeah, right. There's no quarantine, you know, from going from Queens to the lower Manhattan. <laughs> and that'll be your uh, annual visit for the first night of Sleekus at the Angusul of Manhattan, uh, where it'll start at 11.15. You will uh, uh, speak for about an hour that night before they say Sleekus at 1 a.m., and that's all here on the Lower East Side. You can actually see and hear by Crone live and in person. You can even bring the book along. He'll autograph it for you before Ashray. Right, Rabbi Crone? You would do that, right? <laughs> Uh, and even after Slichas as well. <laughs> I even, just even after Slichas. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, I, I just hope our mutual friend David David Zitzer that he should have a full shlema. I know he hasn't been well, and I daven for him every day. 
Well, I saw him yesterday, and he's looking better and better. I can tell you that much. Baruch Hashem. By the way, you have a great Lower East Side story, and, there, and it's, you want to know something on paper? It's funny, on paper. It's not such a great story because it doesn't have the drama, but so many of the stories of Rav David Feinstein and his life and the way he conducted himself were not great stories. We were just amazed at how courteous he was toward others, uh, like you know, like a regular courteous person would be. After all, he was the Rosh Hashiva. The one I'm talking about is when he knew that there was a woman taking care of her child in his office in MTJ during the uh, uh, the Rosh Hashanah service, and and he insisted that they wait because he noticed that she didn't come out and finish, which means she would have uh, missed its kia. She would have missed its kia so far. I think I'm telling this correctly, am I? Well, to just one a slight change, what he did was before the Baltikea was going to start blowing Schaefer, he called over that fellow, the husband of right. that a woman, right. and he asked her, he asked him, uh, is your wife finished in the office? And when he said yes, and then he said, now we can blow Schaefer. But the, the idea, here's a Godelard door yep. who's got, you know, hundreds of people in the base medrash, and he's thinking about that one woman who might miss yeah, Shafer, where's she going to hear it the rest of the day? Oh, let me tell you. I can, I, I, as I always say, uh, all, all I was was his neighbor, right? Not a, not a Talmud, and, uh, but just being here for 30 years in the same building in the same neighborhood and watching how he conducted himself, my God. Uh, that, that's, yeah. a, that's a Musser Seder, just watching certain— that's right. certain, No question about that. C- certain gedolim and people and the way they conduct themselves with, yeah. with other people. Uh, and, and, and one that, of the things that I'm very proud that I did in this book is that I also used some history. In other words, there were many things that happened in Elo, Rosh Hashanah, and Asherah in Jewish history that are very inspirational. For example, many people don't realize that the, the Danish king allowed Jews to escape from Denmark to Sweden, so that because the Nazis were planning to surround all the shuls the first night of Rosh Hashanah, and there was a certain Nazi who found out about it. He was working in Denmark, and he hated the Nazis, what they were doing. And he let the Jewish people know, and the king and his officials, they provided police cars so that the Jews would be able to go up north. And during Asherah they went by boat. And the thousands, thousands were saved. They went from... Denmark to Sweden, and they were in Sweden for two years until after the war. And I'll tell you the most amazing thing that people told me, that lived through it. I spoke to people in Denmark, I spoke to others, that the Danish king and the Danish officials, they did not let anybody go into any of the Jewish homes. And when the Jews came back to Denmark, after two years, the tables were still set with the honey dishes and, and the silverware and, and, and the collar covers on the table. Could you imagine? For two years, nobody went into a Jewish home or Jewish school to vandalize it. It's unbelievable. Yeah. There, there are some good people out there. There are some good people out there. I know I got to let you go because, you know, I, I, can't, I can't get Hananya that upset at me. I want to make sure to be able to get back to his studio for our next Lagba Omer celebration. But I, I have to ask you, Rabbi Crow, it, it had to have, as, as laborious as it is to write a book, it has to go to a different level when you're trying to think of and present and research, think of and present something different about each one of the al How difficult a process was that? Oh, that, you know something? You're so right. It, and it is three things. There's the Oshamnu, Avina Malkainu, and al Right. Because you're really saying 44 different al You're saying so many Avina Malkainus, 
and you're saying Hashamnu, and what is the difference? And you really have to work. I can't say I wrote about every one, but some right. of them that I did write right. were so meaningful. For example, Deutsch, I think, do you know Itchy Deutsch? Sure. Yeah, so he told me a great story that uh, he once asked Rapam for advice, and then he came back to tell Rapam that the advice had worked very well. So Rapam told him something, which I think about every time I say Hashamnu. You know, we say Yo'atznu Ra. We bang our hearts and we ask Hashem forgiveness and we gave bad advice. Rapam said, I cry when I say Yo'atznu Ra because so many people ask me for advice. And do I know if I gave them the right advice? Many times people don't come back to me, so I don't know if I gave the right advice or not. And I think that's a very important lesson. Many times people ask our advice. And I think that it's a responsibility when we're saying you oxnurah to think, did you give the right advice? Were you really cognizant of all the facts? Are you aware of everything in this situation that you're able to give right advice? Many times we give advice without thinking twice, and that's wrong. And that's what the oxnurah is all about. You know, often people give advice for what's best for them. That's right. And that's, right. and, and that's a that's a real you know that that's a real battle with the eight Sahara not to give advice right. for what's best for uh, you but what's best for the other person. And even, now, even, I want to show you something. Now I, I I wish that you and the listeners will have a pencil and paper to write down something that will absolutely blow your mind. You will not believe what I'm about to tell you. And I wrote this in because the first time I heard it, I absolutely went crazy. Now you all know you know what a palindrome is, of course. A sure. palindrome is a word like mom, pop, right. radar, race card that you could read frontwards and backwards. Right. Now we have in the Alchid the covered keyboard hoyrim or giving respect to our parents and to our teachers. So I tell this story that Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky once figured out. Now write down these words; you will not believe this. Vayove leaviv, vayove leaviv is in the pasuk when. Esau brings food mm-hmm. to his father, Yitzchak. Right. Now, if you wrote down these words, Just you will be shocked to see that it's a palindrome. Right. It is. I wrote it down. It is. <laughs> is that amazing? <laughs> but listen to what Rabbi Chaim Janievsky said you could learn from this palindrome. He said, the way you treat your parents, that's how your children are going to treat you. Isn't <sighs> that amazing? Boy, and the older you get, the more you realize how true it is. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Is that true? By So that's what I wrote by Kibbutz And that's one of the things that I'm going to be speaking now on this video that I'm making, you know, for both Toronto and England. Right. That they, they, the topic they wanted me to speak about is it's a time to plant. Because it's after COVID, you know, right. hopefully, mostly after COVID. Let's hope. We're still in but. The idea is we've got to plan for the future. And one of the things to plan, if you want your kids to respect you, is to respect your own parents. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. You know I could do this with you all day long. Uh, unfor- <laughs> unfor- unfortunately, we're limited on time. Uh, but I will recommend, highly recommend, and not that you need my recommendation, Rabbi Crow, but everybody out there, trust me on this one. I uh, absolutely enjoyed this book thoroughly. It couldn't have been timed any better than coming out, obviously, now at the beginning of Elul, uh, buy it and enjoy it. It's Yamim Narayim with the Magid, elevating stories and insights from Elul through Yom Kippur. Rav Hesach Kron is the author. Go to artscroll.com, use promo code radio. Again, go to artscroll.com, use promo code radio for your big discount and free shipping on every single order, no matter what, no matter how big and no matter how small. Yamim Narayim with the Magid, Rabbi Pesach Kron. Do, do you count books, Rabbi Kron, or uh, you're not into that? You don't know exactly the number that you've written. 
Oh, well, if you take a look at the back cover, you'll see 17. Wow. Pretty amazing. Puzzle. I can't believe it. And sometimes I look at that picture of all the books in the back. If you have the book in front of you, yeah, you I take haven't. a look at the back cover. And, and I take a look and I think, man, i got to meet this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and the word Magid is on most of them, by the way. <laughs> yeah, Right. Uh, I thank you so much. Uh, best regards to everybody at Art Scroll. And, okay. And, and tell, tell Hanania we try to respect his schedule as much as possible. And I take this okay. opportunity right to, to wish you a Ksivach Simatova happy, healthy, and sweet new year. Um, and you as well, you and your family. And we should be able to continue doing all the things that we love. And one of the things we love is talking to each other. I appreciate that very much. I love it immensely. And a good yard to you. The one and only Rabbi Pesach Kron. Pick up the book. You will love it. There's no other way for me to say it. You will love it. Elevating stories and insights from Elul Yom Kippur. The book is called Yamim Noroyim with the Magid. More coming up. You are listening to a Thursday morning edition of JM in the AM. Those words that um, Rabbi Krohn spoke about regarding our Chesed campaign. I can't say it better myself. Everybody out there, pay attention to those around you who can use a boost, not necessarily financially, just can use a boost, can use a nice gesture before Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot and do what you can to help them out in whatever way possible and show your children and grandchildren what you're doing. Thursday morning broadcast, plenty more coming up. You're listening to JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Ray Pesach Krohn. Ray Moshe Bamberger is next. He's got a brand new book from ArtScroll as well. You can go to ArtScroll.com and check it out. Always use promo code radio. Here's my conversation with Ray Moshe Bamberger on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Rabbi Moshe Bamberger is with us live via telephone. He has written some amazing books and has sh- shared some incredible photographs and words with us over the years. And the new one from ArtScroll and ArtScroll.com is called Great Jewish Inspiration. Rabbi Moshe Bamberger, Great Jewish Inspiration, Powerful and Motivational Messages by Torah Personalities. Rabbi Moshe Bamberger, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. Thank you so much for having me on, as always. A pleasure. Um, It's funny because... um, uh, we, we've gotten used to your format where photographs and, of course, words that accompany those photographs often, um, uh, you know, dominate um, uh, what you're trying to present uh, and what you are presenting to the Jewish world. Um, why is a book on great Jewish inspiration a good balance between copy and photographs? Listen, we all need inspiration. Uh, if you read my introduction, I write a little bit about uh, COVID and uh, what happens to the Jewish communities around the world. And I also shared some personal experiences that I had during the COVID epidemic. Uh, it's still on, but in the height of things. And um, I found that people really were thirsting for a little bit of chizuk, emuna, inspiration, motivation. And there's very few uh, mediums uh, today, at least, that people find that uh, as is as acceptable and as uh, absorbing as a photo together with a quote on top of it. Right. If you look at uh, you know the world of social media, uh, so many people use this as uh, as a as a vehicle to really drive home a point in the most powerful, succinct way. And especially the younger generation is quite used to this. They're not used to sitting and learning heavy-duty 
Musser's farm or Mahshava's farm. They want it quick and they want it, you know, straight into the bloodstream. <laughs> you have, you and, have no idea how accurate you're being because I, I know young people who would, who, who would not be inclined to pick up a regular book as much as they're encouraged to do so. But a format like this, they would digest pretty well. Exactly. And that was the uh, that was the vision. The vision was, and we've done this uh, a few times uh, with the smaller parts of our series. As you know, we have about five coffee table size books right. uh, on Jewish history through different uh, ways of looking at Gedeon through their letters and through their speeches and their uh, treasures, their artifacts, their books, and their uh, journeys. You know, their their life story as uh, as expressed by the Kivrit Sadiq, in which we discussed uh, only a few months ago. Right, but. This, in the series of the smaller paperback books, um, together with Great Jewish Wisdom and Great Jewish Photographs, is really trying to convey uh, a powerful message in a very, very small space, and in a way that's really uh, so exciting and, and, uh, and inviting. Yeah. Uh, I've gotten such amazing feedback, and it's interesting the gamut of feedback that I've gotten. It's very rare that you can hear from parents that they love the book and their children, their little five, six-year-old children cannot put it down. And then I have Rosh Hashivas that tell me that they can't put down the book. So tell me another format that I could do that, that I'd be able to have people from five to 95 all thoroughly absorbed by words of Chachmei Yisrael. Yeah, it's it's so, and that's really what uh, drove us this time to present this book to the Jewish public and Bliyai and Hara. You know, it's only been out like maybe three four days, and I've had tremendous tremendous uh, uh, response to this book. Rabbi Moshe Bamberger is with us. All right, I've got to start. You know, you know where I'm sitting right now. I'm sitting across the street from the building in uh, which I had the pleasure for the last thirty one years to be a neighbor of the uh, great Rav David Feinstein of blessed memory. Mm. Uh, and um, e- even someone like myself, who was not a member of his yeshiva and uh, did not on a regular basis uh, daven with him, nonetheless, it's impossible not to have been inspired by him. It was impossible not to have been inspired by the role model that he was and how he conducted himself, frankly. And we, as you know, Rabbi, Ma- Rabbi Bamberger, just kicked off last week on Rosh Chodesh, a week ago today, our Elul Chesed campaign, just focused literally on helping whoever we can uh, directly or indirectly, meaning directly or through organizations, uh, during the month of Elul as Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot are approaching. And listen how you start. And and, it, and it's amazing that he is the first uh, Gadol in our history uh, that you uh, that you speak about and that you quote. Uh, you start by saying the Torah is referred to as Torah's Chesed, which means, according to Rav David Feinstein, Rosh Hashiva, Masifta Tavaris Yushalayim, that quote, when Yidin get up after learning a Sugya, they should be more compassionate kinder, with more room in their heart for others. If that doesn't happen, then they didn't really learn it and should sit down and learn it again. Not that it's fair to ask you, but could you elaborate on this a drop? Because it's just brilliant. It's amazing. It's really just, it's, Rebdavid is basically telling us that the formula for learning Torah is how much chesed results from your learning. If you're learning and you stay the same person, then there's something wrong with your learning. Learning Torah is designed to make us better people, to make us more compassionate, to make us uh, better husbands, better wives, better neighbors, better parents, and Torah should be doing that. If it's supposed, if it's accomplishing what it was designed to do, then that's the result. 
And if it's not having that result, as David Feinstein would say, that you got to go back and sit and learn all over again because obviously there was something that was amiss. Yeah. And, you know, this is, uh, David was such a gadol and it's such a loss. And, um, you know, I, I specifically wanted to start the book with him because, you know, he, he just, his loss was so great. And I think somebody was just talking to me, I think it was yesterday maybe, uh, or maybe Thursday, Friday, that, Rib David, we didn't realize, maybe you did as a neighbor, but Klal Yisrael did not realize how great Rib David was until after he was Nifter, for the most part. I mean, people that knew him knew yeah. him, but most people read about him and said, oh, we thought that he was, we knew he was Rashu, we thought he was Rav Meshach Feinstein's son. They didn't realize that independently, if his last name would have been Goldberg, he would have been also a towering Torah giant that, of epic proportions. And it's such a loss, and you know this is something that also I try to bring it, bring about through these books to appreciate Gedalia Yisrael. Uh, we need our Jewish leaders, we need our our Torah sages, and people that think that we don't uh, really are are missing out on a tremendous part of the religion. These are Torah sages that are not just scholarly, but they're tzaddikim. They're yeah. they're wise, and they're and they're just so full of personality and, and love that the more we could tap into their words, the more that we can ourselves be great people. And and uh, not, again, not that I know enough, I know very little, but what I can say is we need Torah leaders like him whose main focus, and, I, and again, I hope it's fair for me to say it like this, at least to those who observed him from afar, I think it's, re- it's responsible to say, whose main focus was shalom and chesed, peace between people, and chesed between people. And again, if you look at it in terms of the big picture and with the quote that you quoted, I mean, that that really sums it up. That was, you know, that, mm-hmm. as, as important as everything is, and trust me, I know the importance of everything in our tradition. I don't know if two things are more important than that. Shalom between mm-hmm. people and chesed between people. Absolutely. Right, Moshe Bamberger is with us. The book is called Great Jewish Inspiration, Powerful Motivational Messages by Torah Personalities. Now, I have to thank you because I didn't realize, I really didn't realize that this was so well known. Uh, to others, uh, we grew up uh, hearing a lot of stories about the Chavetz Chaim because my grandmother's family was from Rodden, and she, as a young girl, knew the Chavetz Chaim. And you include in the book something that I've been told since I'm a little kid, that the saintly Chavetz Chaim observed that when writing on a postcard, that life is like a postcard. Why? Why is life like a postcard? When writing on a postcard, people usually begin in large, leisurely scrawl, but as the message begins to fill the space available, there's so much more to say and so, and so little space left. So they crowd in another line and squeeze in another word. Similarly in life, we take it easy on our youth, leisurely wasting time, not realizing how much we'll be left to do with so little time to do it. And it's only when we age that we begin to, quote, pack it in. But alas, time runs out. Now, the problem here is that a lot of kids don't know what a postcard is. But if you're, <laughs> if you're able to transmit to them just how important postcards were for communication at one point, they may get it. They may understand it. That The first half of the postcard that you wrote, according to the Chavetz Chaim, had big letters and little expectation. And then everybody tried to squeeze it in toward the end. By the way, I think those of us who wrote letters to Israel and aerograms can also relate to this, not just postcards. <laughs> so thank you very much. I didn't realize this was so known worldwide, but I'm glad to hear that something I grew up with is, uh, is such an important uh, uh, adage. My father, all of Shalom, used to say that he, when he was, uh, you know, when he was of dating age and he was a marriageable age, so he had a friend who was going out with a girl seriously, 
And I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but you said things that you didn't know if you were allowed to say, but he said that he wanted to express his feelings for her in a firm way. So he micrographed the entire Shira Shirin <laughs> on a postcard. Can you imagine writing the entire Shira Shirin, which is quite a long Megillah, oh. on a little postcard and sending it to her? I really hope it didn't get lost in the mail. But <laughs> that's, eight, um, that's eight chapters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, I'll tell you. Uh, uh, Rabbi Sacher Bear of Rudashitz, is that the right pronunciation? Yeah, uh-huh. Says, yeah. in the morning arise, an important guest has arrived that was never here before and will never return, and that guest is today and what a perspective that is because we get up in the morning we wonder what kind of day it'll be and if we'll utilize it to its maximum and he's indicating that one must realize how special it is yeah, and you do that every day Nachum. look at you Thank you know you. every day you come you get up and you uh you give life to claudia and you show people how to wake up like a yid with maidani and with inspiration and with song and with emuna and with tzedakah like how much you really personify that particular quote. I'm so happy that you mentioned that. I appreciate that very much. All right, tell me, and again, again, this is why it's so good for 2021. I love the fact that you're taking Torah giants who lived a thousand years ago and associating them with really, you know, modern things that would not normally be in, in you know, in, um, in, in Sfarim, would not normally be in scholarly works. Tell me the relationship between Rashi and the Wright brothers. Uh. Yeah, I was I was wondering if people would appreciate that, or I'd be putting to hair for that. But um, uh, Rashi writes in Megillus Kahelis uh, on the pasuk of Tevim Hashnayim and Echa that two are better than one. The famous adage that two are better than one or two heads are better than one. So Rashi writes that a, um, something that a single person would sometimes not dare even attempt uh, to begin. But two people would. Two people encourage one another, and they say, let's try this, and let's get this thing off the ground, and let's push it through. And that's the beauty of two over one. One person, you know, you get down on yourself, and you have second thoughts, and you wake up one day, you're excited about something, and you wake up the next day, and that's a horrible idea. But if you have a partner, uh, that partner can really propel something to fruition and, and to success. And so I was thinking, like, what would be a good graphic for that? And right. the, I think the best graphic is the Wright brothers. The Wright yeah. brothers were two brothers who basically changed the world by attempting what was, until that point, something that was impossible to imagine, uh, that you can actually sit in, a, in an airplane and take off, and eventually it evolved, of course, into modern uh, air travel. But they began, and they tried, and they, they failed, and they tried, and they failed, until they finally got it right. And, and I love that graphic of the two of them in the airplane or, you know, trying to help it take off. And there was a third person also that was, uh, that was there to assist. But it's really, like, I think a great muscle of what Rashi is trying to say, that these are, with two people, you can actually get something off the ground uh, if you have the right partner. And the same is true, not just with business partners, but of course with a marriage. If you have a, a good partner in marriage, then that you would be able to establish a family and, and children and grandchildren, which is something that's really a, a very, very great uh, responsibility and undertaking. And until you uh, have somebody that's good for you to do that, um, you know, it's really a very, very uh, difficult undertaking. I, I want to just use that as a segue to thanking my Ashish Chayo, my wife, Risa, 
who really puts up with a lot in order for me to publish <laughs> these books because it really, I mean, it would, you don't know, maybe you do, but the amount of man hours that it takes to produce these books are, it's off the charts. And so, and it's not just that, does. it's that you're completely in it. Like you're, you're almost separated from the world as you delve into it and try to get it done. Exactly. So I mean, that's beautiful. You know, it's great for me to be in that little right. bubble of, of history and time and art and everything that goes into these books. But the, the facts are that, you know, it's, it's difficult to raise a family and it's difficult to, to do a lot of the things that, uh, you know, that need to be done. And, and my wife very happily um, and excitedly undertakes all of that in order to enable me to do this. All right, I, I got to do a couple of more. I, I literally, you know what we could do when we're getting to that point where I can go through every page with you, but we, we cannot do that. I have, I have time. <laughs> <laughs> I think our time's already up. Ramanacha Mendel of Kutsk, I love the fact that you you speak about his quote of living in the present, uh, or or summarize his words by writing "live in the present," and you're using the symbol of social media, the symbol of uh, of online uh, being somewhere, which is that red you know circleish type thing, uh, to make people think like you know the whole power of now, the whole living in the present, the whole you know thing that we can relate to today. That when you're looking at a map or looking at a specific location. You have to know where you are and, and where you are, not just geographically, but where you are in terms of, uh, you know, uh, psychologically as well. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. This, you know, this is also a very important role of this book and all my books is that a lot of times people think that it's modern psychology that right. has come up with this term like mindfulness. I right. remember when my girls were in a certain elementary school, uh, they had a year that the theme was mindfulness, living in the moment. And you thought this was something that was probably just developed in the 1980s by somebody in Columbia. But, <laughs> right. you know, but the Kutzka writes a beautiful word, and I, I'd like to share it with you if I have a minute. That mm-hmm. He says that Meshra Abenu goes up on Harsinai, and Hashem says, Alei Eli Hahara, come up to the mountain, and be there. So the Kutzkraft, well, of course I'm going to be there. Where else, where else is my Shrevena going to be? If he's not on the mountain, you're telling me to come up on the mountain. Of course that's where I will be. What does it mean, Hayesham? So the Kutzkraft says that what Hashem was saying to my Shrevena was that I want you to come up on the mountain and I want you to be present there. I don't want your mind to be elsewhere. When you're by me, I want you to be by me. Wow. And when you're... And that's, can you imagine, like even Maish Rabbeinu needed to reign yeah. in his thoughts so that to live in the moment, not to live in yesterday, not to live in tomorrow, to live right here and right now at this second of life. Phenomenal. Because that's where life is. That's where life is. Phenomenal. And finally, uh, just a comment about the one from Rabbi Shimon Schwab. 99% mm. MS equals 100% Sheker. 99% oh. truth equals 100% falsehood. Uh, tell me about that one. Yeah, that's, uh, my mother was looking at that on Shabbos, and she started tearing up because wow. our family is very close with her, Shimon Schwab, and she remembered him actually uh, you know, saying these types of messages constantly uh, in his community in Washington Heights that he was impeccably honest, and he demanded honesty and integrity from his congregants and from Kal Yisrael. He did not accept any form of shtick or any form of cutting corners or cheating in any which way. And, and he would say this mathematical formula, that 99% MS, meaning something sometimes seems to be, that's true enough. I did enough. It's, it's almost 100% true. Okay, there's some minor issues that, you know, we fudge, but it's almost 100% true. 
of Schwab felt that 99% MS equals 100% Sheka. If there is a little bit of truth that's missing, then it means that the entire pie is all Sheka. It's all a lie because it's built and it's con- and contained therein is some degree of falsehood. That means that it taints the entire truth of everything. Rabbi Moshe Bamberger is responsible for great Jewish letters, great Jewish speeches, great Jewish treasures, great Jewish classics, great Jewish journeys, great Jewish photographs, great Jewish wisdom, and now great Jewish inspiration. We'll recommend all of them, and especially the new one, Great Jewish Inspiration, Powerful and Motivational Messages by Torah Personalities. Rabbi Moshe Bamberger, you can look it up at artscroll.com. Order it. Don't forget, use promo code RADIO. Always use promo code RADIO for your discount and your free shipping. The brand new book by Rabbi Moshe Bamberger is Great Jewish Inspiration. Check it out at artsgirl.com. All right, Bamberger, Mazal Tov on the book. I take this opportunity to wish you a Ksiva Tova. Happy, healthy, and sweet new year. Thank you so much, Nachum. I just want to you know, mention that you are a great source of inspiration to myself and to thousands and thousands of others around the world. You are really a great Jewish inspiration. And uh, growing up, I used to listen to you all the time, and uh, until these uh, this day, and uh, you've gained, you, you've granted, call yourself so much through all that you do, and I want to wish you continued strength and inspiration, motivation to continue every single day. You are very Amen. Thank you so much. You leave me speechless, and. As I'm always told, that's dangerous in this profession, but I can't thank you enough for that. Rabbi Moshe Bamberger on a Monday morning at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Round the world, the web, and AlchemSingle.com, and the AlchemSingle Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. That was my conversation with Rabbi Moshe Bamberger. Both his book and Rabbi Krohn's new book are available at artscroll.com. Always use promo code radio. That does it for Jam Rewind for this week. Stay tuned. Plenty more great program coming up on the Nahum Siegel Network.